Our readings this morning are going to be from Genesis, Genesis chapters 13 and 14. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoah was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedaliamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinar, king of Admar, Shemeba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Belar, that is Zeror. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Dead Sea Valley. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedaliamer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedaliamer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtoreth Konaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shaveh Kiriathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went on Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admar, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Belar, that is Zerah, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedaliamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. 
Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorites, a brother of Eshcol and Anir, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobar, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedaliamer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then... Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anir, Eshkol and Mamre. Let them have their share. This is God's word. Thank you, Sarah and Mark. This is God's word. It's got some tricky long words in it, though, and um, thank you very much for for dealing with it. Uh, The rest of you might be wondering what that's all about. Slightly obscure passage in the Old Testament. I think it's fantastic, and uh, I'm going to try and tell you what it's all about. But we'll need God's help. So let's pray. Almighty God, we come to you today, we put ourselves in your hands and we pray that by your word, as you've promised, you'd speak to us and we pray you bless each one of us for the next few moments as we listen to your word and then indeed as we share the Lord's Supper together. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen. My name's Pete, by the way, I'm assistant minister here, Uh, very welcome, Uh, you're all very welcome, especially if you're new. Uh, We try and not dodge the difficult or rather obscure bits of the Bible here, and this might be one of those examples where on first blush you think, what the heck? I think perhaps if, uh, let's say you're an army officer, you might be drawn to the fact that um, Abraham defeats people at night with um, fewer men than average, and you might think, well, this is clearly a lesson in battle tactics. Or, you know, if you're involved in a family dispute at the moment, you might think, well, this is clearly actually a lesson in, you know, the the older generation needs to be kind and generous to the younger generation because this is what Abram does to Lot. Or, you know, if you're a feminist, you might think, well, actually, this is clearly a lesson in how the men stuff it all up again and um, Sarai should have had a word and sorted everything out. You see, you can be drawn in all sorts of different directions depending on what detail you latch onto. I want to suggest to you that the author's purpose here is beautifully clear. What he's doing is putting Abram and Lot side by side and inviting us to just compare the two. I don't think it's much more complicated than that. So they're the two main characters in both chapters and they get up to various escapades, as we'll see. But he's saying, look, what do you think? How do they behave? 
You can get that from the chapter headings. Do you see the bits in bold in the Bible? They're not always a reliable guide because they're, they're not original. They were put in by editors. But start of chapter 13, Abram and Lot separate. You see, he's putting them side by side. What do you think? Start of chapter 14, Abram rescues Lot. The two characters side by side, inviting us to compare the two. In particular, when you compare them, what you get is Abram behaving incredibly generously in both chapters. I mean, he gives the best land to his nephew, which he didn't need to do. He's just really kind and generous. He makes the offer. And then in chapter 14, he he risks his life to go after his stupid nephew, which he didn't have to do. So incredibly generous behavior. And then there's Lot. Doesn't really do quite so well. He behaves foolishly. He takes what he can, when he can, and then he gets himself caught up in a stupid battle he didn't need to be in. So Abram behaves in a godly way, Lot in a really quite godless way. I mean, Lot doesn't even mention God in these chapters. Abram constantly talking about God. Lot doesn't bother. So we're supposed to compare them in that sort of way, what they say and what they don't say. I think it comes down to this for us and for our lives today. What do you see? What do you see? I've put it here on your service sheets if you want to follow along. That is, Lot looks around him. He's looking at the same world as Abram was looking at. And he sees, well, the physical world in front of him. He sees the the land that gets offered to him in these chapters. And he takes it because, well, why would you not? He takes it while he can and he grabs it. Seizes the opportunity. Carpe diem and all that. Abram looks at the same scene. He sees the same physical stuff in front of him. Sees the land, but he sees in a different way. Because, well, you might say he's got a vision. He sees by faith. He's got his physical eyesight, but he's got something else as well. It sort of puts it into an extra dimension. The New Testament would talk about this as seeing by sight or seeing by faith. Lot sees by sight and Abram sees by faith. We started off this series last week. We we're calling it Living in the Gap Between Promise and Reality. And we said it's, it's somewhat like that program Grand Designs on telly. You've seen that one, you know, Grand Designs, when um, so-and-so, you know, they, they've, they've got this rubbish heap, you know, just an empty rubble-strewn plot of land, and uh, they go on telly because they think, they say to the presenter, no, 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 this is not just a rubbish heap. This is our Grand Design. This is going to be the most brilliant glass and steel mansion one day soon. And uh, the presenter raises an eyebrow and says, really? And, you know, faith sees the rubbish heap. I don't understand what it's like now. I see this plot at the moment but I see something else. There's an extra dimension that you guys don't seem to understand, but I see it. I have the vision for the grand design that's going to be built here one day. And the rest of us on telly or Kevin McLeod, we don't get that. That's why we need the sort of animation, you know, the architect's thing that drops in the walls and the bedrooms and the sofas, because we need something else to help us see. But the, the people, the owners, the owners of the land, they say, no, we see by faith. We have the vision. We get it. Nonetheless, they're living in the gap between the promise and the reality. They haven't got there yet. And we're saying that the life of faith is rather like that. I I live in the gap. God has given me incredible promises in the gospel. I'm not there yet, but I'm sure they're true because I trust the promise giver, as we saw last week. Right. What do you see then? I think a lot of the Christian life does come down to this. I live by faith and not by sight. Of course, in our day in London, we don't live in ancient Israel we're not fighting against lots and lots of kings in a civil war, but uh, materialism and atheism. Look around at the world and say, well, I see a beautiful world. 
the atheist view of the world does seem to be very beautiful to me. It marvels at the science, and it says, this is beautiful, and it's temporary. And I've got to grab it while I can. I see by sight, and I must make the most of it, because my three score years and ten will soon be up, and if I don't live for the now, then I die. I think that's why, as, as Christians caught up in that sort of materialist, atheist culture, we find it really hard to live by God's rules for things like sex and marriage. Because, well, what happens if this is my only chance for a relationship? I've got to take it while I can because it might not come round again. We find it really hard when um, we're in a career that the materialist world is also in because I've got to climb the ladder now. If I don't take this promotion, then it might not come round again because this world is temporary. I've got to grab it. Or I think it's why I find giving money away so painful. Because if, if I give you this money out of my wallet now, then it might never come back. I, I, I've got to keep all the resources now because that's what helps me live the, the life of sight in this world. As Christianity looks around at the world around me and says, I see that it's beautiful. I get that. But I see something beyond that. I see the creator who made it and he is permanent. This is, he's not temporary like the world. He is permanent. He's not going away. And I'm prepared to live by faith in someone whose promises are abiding. He promises me something so grand that the world now that I'm so scared about grabbing onto is going to look like rubble one day when his grand design is finished. So what do you see? Let's see what uh, Abram and Lot see and then we'll, we'll come back to us at the end. Okay, Chapter 13. I'm going to try and keep it really simple for you because there's a lot of words here in the Old Testament. Chapter 13. Sight grabs faith Shares. Sight grabs, faith shares. You could, of course, equally say Lot grabs and Abram shares. It's the same thing. Okay, Lot. Here we go. Let's, let's start looking at Lot and then we'll look at Abram. Chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Just follow along with me. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had. And Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. Now remember who um, Abram is. He's the sort of wealthy guy who God made promises to uh, and then Lot is his nephew, who's the orphan. So his, his dad died at the end of chapter 11 when they were in a foreign country. So Lot is the guy who sort of benefits from all Abraham's patronage, and he's been taken under the wing of Abram. He's lucky to be alive, is, is Lot. He's this young man, and uh, he is getting rich too from wealthy uncle Abraham. So just look at verse 5. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land couldn't support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Lot is um, lining his pockets because of wealthy uncle Abram. And as if that wasn't good enough, you're getting rich anyway. You are now so rich that you and your uncle can't live together because the land can't support you. So this happens in verse 8. Lot makes, uh, sorry, Abram makes the most incredible offer. Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are close relatives. Literally, the word is brother. So he is the guy's uncle, but he says, look, we're brothers, okay? Let's not have any quarreling. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. (laughs) To which I can only assume there was a little bit of uncomfortable foot shuffling. (laughs) What? (laughs) Sorry, Uncle Abraham. Um... You're offering me the choice. 
I mean, the, the whole land that you were promised, you're letting me choose the best bit. Which presumably you have that Englishman's dilemma of, am I supposed to be polite here, or is it, can I actually choose the, the, the best bit? And the best bit was pretty obvious, apparently. So the bit that Lot chooses, the land uh, to the east of the Jordan, uh, was greener and nicer. You know the phrase, the, the grass is always greener on the other side? The grass was greener on uh, Lot's side. It was, it was uh, irrigated by rivers and streams. That's why he says it's a bit like Egypt, because the Nile keeps Egypt really green, even when the weather's hot. So the grass was greener on Lot's side. And, uh, well, he took it. Look, around, look, uh, look at verse 10. Lot looked around. Remember, this is all about seeing, so it's not an accident. Lot looks around, he sees by sight, and he saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Do you get it? Lot's given the choice and he chooses the green land. For Abram, the grass was greener over there. The grass was kind of yellow over here. So he gets the land on the west of the Jordan where uh, it's, a, it's a ridge of hills which is perfectly beautiful but it depends on the rain if it's going to grow anything. Depends on the rivers, depends on the rain. I guess if you're a farmer you'd rather have that one which is more reliable. But we're supposed to think uh, uh, Lot, what are you... Hang on. I get that the grass is greener, but did you not pick up the hints? We're told it's like the land of Egypt. Oh, hang on a minute. Uh, didn't we hear about Egypt recently? Oh, yeah, that's where it went really badly in chapter 12. Okay, don't go down to Egypt if you can. Uh, we're told that the Lord is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The narrator just gives it a little throw forward. Oh, uh, 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 oh, no. Why are you going to live near then? near there. We're told at the end of the paragraph in 13, he actually goes and pitches his tents right there, near the city that the Lord is about to destroy. Ah, 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 what are you doing, Lot? And then uh, we're told that he goes east. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, east has been the wrong way to go. Ah, 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 don't go east. Oh my goodness. I know the grass is greener, but do you realize how much trouble you're going to get into? So Lot, sight grabs I mean, I don't want to be too hard on the guy. You remember last week we saw that faith fails for fear. That seems to be the reason Abraham mucks up in Egypt, because he's scared. Faith fails for fear. And it seems to be the same here for Lot, you know. He thinks, oh, this is a fantastic offer. And if I don't take it now, I don't know what life will hold for me. When will I ever get an offer this good again? So thank you very much. I'll take the money. Take the land. I think I've experienced the same thing, have you? If I don't take this opportunity in life now, when will it ever come round to me again? I have to live in this house. It has to be this house, actually. Of all the ones that are on the market, I've just decided it's, going to be, it's got to be this one. Because if I don't, when will, when will it ever come round again? Actually, in term, if we're deciding where to live, I, I have to get the kids into this school. It's got to be this school. If, if I don't, then when will I ever get such an opportunity again? It has to be this job, actually. I, I've totally set my heart on this job because if it doesn't, if I don't grab it now by sight, then I can't see it ever coming back. Well, of course, I'd say to Lot, I know, Lot, I understand, I felt that, but in Genesis language, 
you will get another chance. Because we're talking about God. God makes a promise. He is able to fulfill it, even in unlikely circumstances. He can, he can work it out. But sight grabs while it can. Okay, so sight grabs. Let's look at um, Abram. Let's, let's compare Lot to him. Uh, of course, faith shares. Abram shares. Just remember, as we look at Abram, he totally botched it in Egypt. I mean, he made a howler of his situation down there. Do you remember if you were here last week? He goes down there, he's scared, and he offers his wife to be taken into the king's household and presumably um, treated, treated sexually for the pleasures of the king. If we're reading between the lines, that seems to have been what happened. So with his marriage in tatters, having sold his wife down the river in that way, he comes back to Canaan, a very humble man. I mean, can you imagine? And he, he does something absolutely fantastic in verse 3. From the Negev, Abram went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, when his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. He goes back to square one. Isn't that great? I mean, beautifully simple. He knows he's botched it up completely. He knows he's failed. He goes back to the altar that he built in the first place, and he prays. He calls on the name of the Lord, which in Genesis is always the thing that the godly people do at the key moments. I call on the name of the Lord. If you are running from God this morning, if life has conspired to make you run away from him, and can I say to you, take, take a leaf out of Abram's book. The best thing you can do is run directly to God. Not away from him. The safest place you can be is actually with him, praying to him, confessing to him. And because of Abraham's um, awful mistake, he seems to be on this totally level playing field where he's able to appreciate the kind of man he is, the kind of promises God has made to him, and he's able to just give to Lot. He's able to make this incredible offer as his uncle, which he didn't need to do. Remember in those days, um, respect was an even bigger thing, so you had to respect your elders in a way that we don't really do in this society anymore. But for Abraham to make this offer to Lot is mind-boggling. You have the best land. But he does it because he's appreciated. I am nothing really here, but I am the recipient of such great promises. And true Christianity has the resources to make people generous in that way. It's funny, on Grand Designs, you know, the, back to our TV program, I have, I've never seen somebody um, get to the end of the program um, and having built their dream house and the, and the vision has become a reality and there they are sitting on the sofa in their palatial home, you know, which is utterly beautiful and breathtaking and we're all ogling it. I've never heard them be interviewed and say... But you know, it, it, we, we realized halfway through the build, it was so beautiful here, and we were so fortunate that we just had to build an extra bedroom and uh, invite anyone in who needed a, a home. I, I've, I've been watching it for a while. I've never heard anyone say that. Yeah, actually, we, we've got a nephew. He's just really in need at the moment, so we built an extra bedroom while we were spending all the money, and uh, we just cramped our space a tiny little bit so we could fit him in. Or there's always someone in the village who seems to need a room for the night, so actually we just stuck an extra bed in, and we can, ho- we can house them here. They don't do that because it's always their grand design for their family and they can shut the world out and lock the door. But if you're living by faith and faith shares, this is what makes Abram so good. He really cracks it in this chapter. 
He's an obviously flawed hero, but at the heart of it, he's a religious failure who's the recipient of incredible promises from God. Charlie Farabell was reminding me of a story recently of a, a slightly more modern guy called Lord Shaftesbury. And he's a great example of a religious failure who received incredible promises from God, his faith shared. Let me just tell you about Lord Shaftesbury. Uh, in fact, if you go out of Christchurch Mayfair, not now, just wait till the end of the sermon, uh, you turn right down the street, uh, you go up Piccadilly, and you get to Piccadilly Circus, you know that, with the big shining billboards. Uh, there's a statue right in the, mi- in the middle, which is a statue that commemorates Lord Shaftesbury, who was a Victorian man. It's known as the Statue of Eros, but what it actually is, is a, if you read it, it's a memorial to Lord Shaftesbury. It's also on the front of the evening standard at the top in the masthead. This statue commemorates a man who was a schoolboy at Harrow. He was a rich kid who was always going to be rich. You know, he was going to inherit his dad's earldom. He was always going to be Lord Shaftesbury. So he brought up with all the privileges of uh, an English lord. And yet one day in Harrow, when he was at school, he came out of his classroom and he saw a poor man's funeral. And the story goes that there were some drunk men, I guess the friend of the deceased, they were carrying this makeshift coffin up the hill towards the church in Harrow. And they were so drunk that they were just swaying all over the place and they dropped the coffin and just fell off their shoulders onto the floor. And Shaftesbury, the 12-year-old Lord Shaftesbury is standing there and he thinks, this is awful. If this is what it means to be poor, then something has to change. And from that moment onwards, he devoted his life to, to sharing whatever resources he could because he was so secure. He was a Christian man who'd been brought up by a Christian nanny and he, he wanted to share whatever resources he could with the poor. And it is remarkable what he got up to. His record in Parliament is um, reforming the lunatic asylums in London, reforming the factory working conditions, uh, limiting children's working hours and um, children who were chimney sweeps and were prone to getting cancer from all the soot. He uh, instituted schools so that actually children didn't have to go to work, they could go to school, and he limited the opium trade so that people were less likely to get addicted to drugs. He spent his entire life pouring himself out for the poor. And when he died in 1885, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, who was a friend of his, wrote this eulogy about Lord Shaftesbury. He was the friend of every living thing. He lived for the oppressed. He lived for London. He lived for the nation. He lived still more for God. Isn't that fantastic? He lived, he just wanted to pour himself out for these other people and share whatever resources he could, but he lived for God still more. That was where he got all his strength and his resources from. Because faith shares. When God has heaped promises and blessings and grace on a religious failure, it does allow you to share with others. It's a bit like a torrent of blessing coming down on me and there's so much I can just open the sluice gate and allow it to pour out to other people. Not many of us, I think, at Christchurch Mayfair will be an earl or a lord or a lady. Not many of us will have the influence that he had. But in ordinary ways, in the everyday, I think we can share the resources God's given us. Not just money and possessions, or I think that's often a very tangible way of doing it. Sometimes the most valuable thing we can do is share our time with another person, because London is so time poor. We could share words that might build them up. And supremely, of course, the greatest blessing God has ever poured down on me or on you is eternal life. And I can open the sluice gate and I can let that out towards other people. 
sight grabs, and faith shares. Secondly, and more more briefly, don't worry, uh, chapter 14. On a similar theme, let's just look at chapter 14, and we realize that sight has something to prove, and faith has nothing to lose. You might have uh, heard Sarah reading Genesis 14 and thought, what is that all about? There's so many kings and this and that and Old Testament names. Although, can I just administer a one-question quiz for you? What's the most often repeated word in Genesis 14? You're allowed to say it if you think you've got it. I heard, I heard someone whisper, don't be shy. Land, and, oh, there's always a pedant, isn't there? <laughs> and, or the, yes, anyone else got one? A, proper, uh, a noun beginning with K, which is king, ah, oh, you all got there and you're just being shy. Okay, I won't do that to you again, don't worry, you obviously found it too uncomfortable. The word is king, which is the point, all these kings have got something to prove, they're just smashing up against one another. There's actually nine kings in Genesis chapter 14, four on one side, five on the other side, they've all got something to prove. All fighting against one another. No one is talking about God. It just doesn't come up till verse 18 when this mysterious character Melchizedek, who we'll get to, he comes up and talks about God. So uh, sight has something to prove. These kings have got something to prove. Uh, I have a map for you just to make the geography a little bit easier. Uh, Here we go. Uh, And I have my laser pointer. Let's try the technology. Okay. There's four kings against five, okay, and they're getting embroiled in this war. In brief, uh, the four kings come from up here. They're sort of eastern kings. Let's call them the eastern kings. And they come all the way up here, uh, down here. They beat all these people, uh, Rephaites, Zuzims. They come all the way down to beat, and we're going to need another slide of the south. They come all the way down here, and they beat these guys who are the five kings. So they are, well, let's call them the Dead Sea Kings. Uh, these guys are, have been under the thumb for 13 years, and they've had enough, and they rebel. And the four kings, whoosh, they come herring down from the northeast to crush them. The, they get rather carried away, and they can't help conquering uh, all of this. They go all the way around here, following the red line, and they end up here, which is the Valley of Sidim, to have a big face-off. Four kings from the northeast against the five Dead Sea Kings. And, well, the the result is in verse 10, do you see? They're having this big face-off. They've each got something to prove. And verse 10, the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, by the way, they've lost. The five kings have lost. It's just a matter of fact. They're fleeing by this point. Uh, Some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the food, and they went away. You've got this godless battle. Everyone's got something to prove. That's the result. The four kings from the northeast win in the end. How interesting for us, perhaps. Uh, the reason it does interest Abram is because of verse 12. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Ah, I see why we're interested now if you're, if you're Abram or the author of Genesis. It's because they've got the nephew. They've carried him off. In fact, they've carried him off really, really far. Back to our map. Uh, the battle is won here, and they go, whoosh, let's get away from here, lads. And then they go north again, if we can have north, Susie, thank you. And they're going all the way up here, all the way back to where they came from, to the north. Abram takes an interest 
In fact, they go past where he's living, which is uh, somewhere near Bethel. Uh, no, beg your pardon, it's down here, Mamre. They go past him, and he thinks, wait a minute, fellas, you've got my nephew. So he chases them, dun, 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 all the way up here, dun, 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 to Dan. And it deserves some sort of theme tune, because it was his epic chase. It's the equivalent of going to Cardiff from London on camel, I guess. You know, chasing someone on a camel all the way from uh, London to Cardiff, because he's so determined to get them back, to, to get his nephew back. Lot, of course, is rather the innocent party, isn't he? Oh. Have a look at verse 12. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Lot, hang on. Back in chapter 13, you were living near Sodom. You remember he pitched his tents near Sodom, and now you're living in Sodom, who are sinning greatly against the Lord. What have you. Lot, something's happened. If we fast forward, and we'll get there in the end uh, in future weeks, he ends up being a, an elder of Sodom, sitting at the town gate, acting like an elder. I mean, he's actually run for the town council, made himself at home. So Lot is on this trajectory, more and more into Sodom, which has got a very bad reputation. And of course, in all of this, our key question is, what do you see? What do you see? All these nine kings, I mean, four kings against five kings, all they see is what they see by sight. I, I see the territory in front of me, and I want it. And I see the people that are getting, me out of my, getting in my way. Get out of my way. I want it. They're, of course, they're all living by sight. This reads, I think, like the history of basically all the wars in the world ever. <laughs> Doesn't it? I mean, the first half of chapter 14, I mean, how depressing. This is like a lot of wars. I see what I want, get out of my way, and I'm going to take it now. Thank you very much. That's what sight does. I'm not sure whether the 21st century holds much better, actually. Whether, given what happened in the 20th century and how the 21st century is unfolding so far, I'm not sure we're in for much better than living by sight this way. Unless we can have a faith that has nothing to lose. So let's just look at that. Sight has something to prove. Faith has nothing to lose. And have a look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. Just for a moment here, the, the veil is lifted on Abram. And, you know, we, so far we've been talking about him as this guy, ordinary guy, promised loads of stuff, so far received nothing. Just for a moment here, you get Abram, the conquering king, who uh, is able to chase after the five kings, totally smash them, and bring back all the plunder. He's behaving as the king of the land that God has promised he will be. He, he, he's behaving like the owner of the land. Comes back, with, comes back with so much plunder, it must have been staggering. And risks everything. I mean, doesn't he? His ungrateful nephew Lot, who has been rather rude to him and taken the best bit of land, doesn't have to go after him, but does. He risks everything. He seemed to think, oh, I've got nothing to lose. Somewhat uh, like a paintballing experience, uh, if you've ever been paintballing. Um, I remember the first time I went paintballing, you know, and you shoot these little plastic pellets of paint at people. And um, people had briefed me in advance and warned me, oh, you're going paintballing. It really, really hurts. 
when you get hit by one of those balls, ow, you're going to have bruises for weeks, and they're going to be the size of balloons. It's going to be multicolored. And so I spent the first half of the day cowering behind all the obstacles, you know, just desperately not wanting to get hit. And then when I did eventually get hit by a paintball, it sort of splats onto you. And I remember thinking, oh, that wasn't that bad. It didn't hurt that much. And, then, and like a lunatic, I end up running around being like, ha, 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 can't hurt me, it's fine. It, 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 guys, they don't really hurt at all. And in some sort of ultimate way, of course, they don't hurt. I mean, you do, you do occasionally get a hard one and they sort of give you a bruise. But actually, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't hurt. You can't kill me with a paintball. I think Abram's discovered that about God's blessings, you know. <laughs> guys, like, I've got nothing to lose. I mean, sure, there's risks I can take. There's ways this could genuinely hurt physically or relationally, but ultimately, God is going to bless me. I have got nothing to lose. I wonder what my Christian life would look like if I genuinely believed I've got nothing to lose. I can just go ahead and do this because God is so determined to bless me through Jesus Christ. I can't throw off heaven and make a mess of that, so I've got nothing to lose. To finish then, let me ask you a question. Are you a Lot or an Abram? I think it's that, that simple at the end of this. Are you a Lot or an Abram? We've been comparing them all along. Here's where it bites. Which one are you? Perhaps we might ask which one are you at the moment? Of course, it's a bit of a trick question actually because both of them are religious failures, aren't they? I mean, Abram's had a really cracking day. He got man of the match that day. But actually, he's a religious failure who's really, really stuffed it up. So both of them are religious failures. Which is actually why we all need this mysterious character at the end of the story called Melchizedek. Melchizedek pops up with a great deal of mystique. You know, he's this guy, in verse 18, he appears with the king of Sodom. I think we're com- supposed to compare the two in some way. But Melchizedek really shines because, well, just read with me. Verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek gets no run-up. I mean, no introduction. We're just thrown in. Ah, here he is on the scene. He doesn't get mentioned for a long time in the Bible after this. But look, look with me at, at what he is. He's king of Salem. Okay, so he's a king. He's a priest of God Most High. Wait a minute, how can you be both a king and a priest? I don't know, we're not told, but he was. Uh, He was uh, blessing Abram. Abram gives him him a tenth of everything at the end of verse 20, which must mean he's sort of superior to Abram. Do you get that? So Abram's the guy who's just won the battle. He's come back with hordes and hordes of booty, and yet he gives it to this guy who's clearly greater than him in some way. And uh, he brings up bread, bread and wine which seems to be some sort of echo of the Lord's Supper. I mean, primarily it must have been some sort of king's banquet. Let let me throw a banquet for you because you've won. But isn't it mysterious? It's bread and wine, like we're about to have in a minute. And he is king of Salem, which is probably Jerusalem. So it's the old-fashioned name for it. It's the right neck of the woods. It's probably Jerusalem that he comes out of. Who the heck is this guy that just pops up at the end of Genesis chapter 14? I don't know, but he reminds me of somebody. He reminds me of that guy who um, turned out to be a king and a priest. He reminds me of that guy who brings out bread and wine at Jerusalem 
and uh, we're still talking about it today. He reminds me of the guy who's able to dish out blessing, even to religious failures, and to whom people still give honor and praise because he's greater than everybody. He reminds me of Jesus Christ. And if you're in home groups, you'll get to Melchizedek in your studies of Hebrews, where he is made a big deal of for that reason, also in Psalm 110. Melchizedek reminds us that actually the gospel of Abraham is not just WWAD. You know those bracelets that you sometimes see, WWJD? Well, the gospel according to Abraham is not WWAD. What would Abraham do? Although it helps. I think that question helps because it helps you uh, share by faith and have nothing to lose. But the gospel is not WWAD or even WWJD. It is WHJD. What has Jesus done? We all need a, uh, a priest king to come and meet us with bread and wine and to say, I'm going to bless you even though you're a religious failure. I'm going to bless you on your bad days and on your good days. I'm going to bless you whether you live by faith or by sight. And that's what Jesus Christ, the great high priest, does for religious failures. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we read this as religious failures who have sometimes lived by faith and sometimes we've spent whole episodes of our life living by sight. Thank you for our great high priest, not just Melchizedek, but uh, the Lord Jesus who meets us with uh, bread and wine in the Lord's Supper and with the offer of eternal life in the gospel. And we praise you for him. Thank you for him who could take a religious failure like me and call him a son of God. Thank you for his grand design for the universe. And it's in his name that we dare to pray. Amen.